Will the Supreme Court opinions provoke public backlash this week on the Science of Politics? For the Niskanen Center, I'm Matt Grossman. The Supreme Court made major conservative rulings this term, but didn't go as far as some expected. Are court rulings out of step with public opinion? And how much do they risk public backlash for moving against public opinion or in a concerted ideological direction? This week, I talked to Joe Ura of Clemson University about his research on public opinion in the Supreme Court. He finds that the court provokes more backlash for moving in a too liberal direction than a too conservative direction, as it provokes ideological opponents without adding support from ideological allies. His work also shows that public opinion reacts against the ideological direction of court rulings, but only for a while. I also talked to Stephen Jesse of the University of Texas about his new PNAS article with Neil Malhotra and Maya Sen, a decade-long longitudinal survey shows that the Supreme Court is now much more conservative than the public. Using surveys of public opinion on specific court rulings, he finds that the court has been moving rightward. They both doubt the court will provoke nearly as much backlash this year as their abortion opinion in Dobbs, but that doesn't mean the court is in step with the American public. Here's our conversation. So you've found that ideological judgments of the Supreme Court uh, follow decisions, uh, but also uh, other factors. So how do Americans judge uh, the Supreme Court's ideological direction? So what we've done uh, in some new research that we presented at the Midwest Political Science Association this last year is look at Gallup data uh, over the last 20 years or so um, that asks Americans whether the Supreme Court is too liberal, too conservative, or about right. And as you point out, uh, part of the the equation is that um, as the court gets more liberal, more people think it's getting too liberal. As the court gets more conservative, more people think it's getting too conservative. The other part that matters is how liberal or conservative the public is, right? Because that question asks for a relative judgment. So if the court is staying consistent, but I'm getting more conservative, I might start to think at some point that the court is, is too liberal, even though it hasn't changed. I have. So to figure out what Americans think about the Supreme Court, we need two big pieces of information. Uh, what's the kind of ideological tenor of what the Supreme Court's doing? And then on the demand side, what do Americans want out of the court? And right, if those things are in alignment, we would think that a lot of Americans would say the court is doing uh, pretty well and that the, the, you know, it's about right. But if the, the, the public is more conservative than the court, then they would think the court is too liberal and vice versa. And so that assumes that they're sort of getting some information directly uh, about how the Supreme Court is doing. Is there evidence that they do that or do they um, kind of misperceive the Supreme Court as doing the same thing that the president is doing or that Congress is doing or uh, kind of just judge randomly? Yeah, so there is evidence that the 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 other piece of that, whether people perceive the court as being too liberal or too conservative is related to what the court's doing. So there is some mechanism that's translating decisions in the aggregate to those public judgments about whether the court is, is getting more liberal or getting more conservative. The, the transmission mechanism um, is something we haven't really nailed down, but there's a couple of, of sort of prime candidates that we would turn to based on what we know about how the public gets information about politics in general. One is, um, I don't want to say directly, but through the, the mass media. Right? The mass media is covering the Supreme Court. It's covering its decisions. People are able to, to 
you know, see that they've, uh, you know, reversed Roe versus Wade or whatever, and, um, and use that information to update their beliefs about the court. Um, the other piece, the other mechanism is um, from elites, right? That when the Supreme Court makes decisions, um, newspaper columnists, uh, presidential candidates, members of Congress, your senator, um, right, they're going to comment on these things to the extent that they think that they're, they're salient issues. So people, I think, get a lot of indirect information through other political figures that they're following. So even if they're not attuned to the court directly, uh, they're paying attention to some other stream of information that produces signals about the court. Um, and then generally, of course, for people uh, who don't pay attention to politics, hear a lot of it secondhand, right? We're, we're all friends with somebody who pays attention to politics as their hobby, right? those opinion leaders, um, and those people transmit information through, into their social networks. You've also found uh, that uh, people do respond uh, to uh, the ideological direction uh, of the court in terms of whether they uh, approve of or, or like uh, what the court is doing. Um, but you found uh, that they, they don't get as much credit as blame, or at least the, the people who are on their uh, ideological side uh, don't seem to increase uh, their support as much as uh, those who are opposed to them uh, decrease their support. So, so tell us about that and, and, and why you think that's occurring. Yeah, so that Gallup data I mentioned before, the too liberal, too conservative, about right. Um, if we use that data to predict Supreme Court approval, there's a pretty strong relationship between the share of people who say the court is about right uh, and the share of people who say the, the court, um, they approve of what the court's doing, which is probably what you'd expect. There's also a negative relationship between um, that too liberal uh, share and approval and the too conservative share and approval. But what's really interesting is that there's a much stronger relationship um, between the, the too liberal share uh, and approval than the too conservative share and approval. And what that means is that, you know, on one side of the ideological spectrum, right, is the court is getting more or less conservative. Um, there are people switching back and forth um, between about right and too liberal. And on the other side, there are people switching back and forth between about right and too conservative. Um, the people switching back and forth between about right and too liberal, um, who are probably going to be people on, on the right side of American politics. When they change, right, when they see that the court is getting too liberal and they're, you know, get to that point where they're saying, I'm not going to answer this question and say the court is about right anymore. Now I'm going to say it's too liberal. They are also more likely to answer the question and say, well, now I disapprove of the court because it's too liberal. On the other side of the spectrum, um, people switching back and forth can see the court getting more conservative, switch from saying it's about right to too conservative. But those people are less likely to also say they disapprove of the court. And there's this ideological asymmetry where people on the left, for, for some reason that we, we're still digging into, um, have this kind of larger reservoir of goodwill towards the court. Where they're willing to express approval in excess of their agreement with the court in a way that people on the other side uh, are not willing to do. 
So one story might be that there's a difference between people on the, the left and the right um, and how they feel about the, the court and it's sort of permanent. Um, but another story might be that we, we haven't been in an era like the one we're in now um, where a lot of people do perceive uh, the court is moving in a very conservative uh, direction. So so how much do you think uh, this, this is changing or, or will change uh, as the court shifts in that direction? Again, this is sort of we're now in the realm of a little bit of kind of educated speculation and things that I uh, haven't um, nailed down in data as much as I would like. But I think part of the difference is that um, uh, about the, the kind of cues that partisans get from elites on their side. So uh, on the left, right, uh, among the Democratic partisans, liberal ideologues and opinion leaders you know, over the last, you know, let's say, two or three generations, and there's been a strong kind of ideological affinity between uh, liberalism and judicial review and judicial power. And it probably goes back to the civil rights era, um, you know, Roe versus Wade, right? uh, different kinds of protections for privacy rights and, and contraception, kind of expansive uh, definitions of free speech. Um, and right, the right has, has sort of developed a politics that is more, if not antagonistic, at least suspicious of judicial review. And that goes back also to the civil rights era. So we have a partisan asymmetry that in how elites sort of ideologically and for you know, strategic policy making reasons treat judicial review. And I think that's filtered into the way that mass partisans and, and people, ordinary citizens see uh, the court. Um, now that there is a kind of baked in Republican conservative majority on the Supreme Court, I think the elite signals are changing over the last couple of years. We're handicapped a little bit in political science in that, um, you know, the models we have, especially these big macro models of the kind I run, look at average effects over, you know, it, it, for example, in that uh, approval paper, I mentioned your 20 years of data, right? So if something has changed as it, as it seems to have in the last couple of years, I can look at the at the data and say, wow, the, the, the output of the model really doesn't fit the last couple of years the way it has historically. Um, but uh, to, to really say that that's a kind of permanent change um, is harder for us. So, um, you know, we'll check back in a decade. We'll know more. But um, it certainly does seem to, to what I can see in the data is that something really has changed in the last couple of years. The model doesn't fit what's been happening in terms of Supreme Court approval since 2021, uh, as well as it has done historically. Um, and I think something about the kind of combination of things with the last couple of Trump uh, Supreme Court nominations and confirmations and the Dobbs decision um, has shifted the kind of data generating process. And I think the next 20 years will look much different, will look much more like the last couple of years than the previous 20 years. But one trend that may predate that, um, but has been accelerated, is just an overall decline in uh, approval or increase in disapproval. Um, you know, to what extent can we call this kind of a a, a real trend uh, that's likely to move in that continue moving in that direction? And is that a sign that the Supreme Court is kind of less treated like a a different kind of political institution than it has been? Yeah, for approval, right? And what we call specific support of the, for the Supreme Court, which is like attitudes that have to do with whether or not people like what the Supreme Court is doing in the short run. Um, 
we've known for a while uh, that approval of Congress and other institutions in the national government uh, are a good predictor of approval for the Supreme Court. And what that shows us is not necessarily that when people think of the Supreme Court, they think of Congress, but that attitudes about the court are linked to larger attitudes about the government and whether people like it. Um, and the court gets lumped in with that. There was a, uh, an idea in scholarship about the Supreme Court in public opinion. Um, that was that the court is different and special and that Americans had a larger pool of goodwill, right? The court was more legitimate. There's more diffuse support for the Supreme Court than the other branches of government, maybe. Um, and I think that's probably still true, but it's probably less true than it was. Right? As you know, congressional approval, I mean, is, is absolutely at the floor. Um, right? Approval for the court is, is trending down and has for the most part over the last 15 or 20 years. Um, and there's multiple reasons for that. But part of it is Americans are just looking more and more askance at their governing institutions generally. And I think they're learning the lesson that maybe the court isn't as, uh, you know, as special as previous generations of Americans thought it was. So you've also uh, looked at how uh, Supreme Court uh, opinions change um, liberal and conservative attitudes in the American public uh, overall uh, and uh, have found that they, they do respond in some ways like they do to, to congressional policymaking, um, but but not in all, all ways. So kind of explain that that pattern. So a, a thing that makes all this complicated is there is feedback from what the court and other governing institutions do in what Americans think um, want from their political system. And you can think of the kind of degree of liberalism and conservatism in public opinion as a, as a kind of measure of demand, right? that if public opinion is very liberal at some moment, it means the American people are generally asking the government to, to do more liberal things, right? Um, uh, increase social welfare spending, increase access to public health care services, increase social services, maybe even increase taxes to pay for things. Right? And if the public is more conservative in some moment, right, they're demanding conservative changes. They want lower taxes and less spending, less generous welfare benefits and so on. And when the government meets that demand, Right. So a, a liberal public votes for Democrats, you know, Joe Biden and, and a Democratic majority come in. Uh, right. They pass these you know, uh, more progressive pieces of legislation. They're satisfying that demand. And so there's the, by satisfying that demand, they're moving public opinion back in the other direction. Right. People don't need as much liberalism as they needed before those those laws passed. Um, and the country's getting more conservative. Um that's how that's the kind of basic relationship between liberalism and conservatism and public opinion, which political scientists typically call mood uh, and public policymaking right, in the aggregate over time. The way the Supreme Court has worked historically in that process is a little bit different. Um, Americans have a more complicated response to, to ideological changes in Supreme Court decision making in that when the court makes a decision, you get that same kind of, of, of negative effect. When the court makes more conservative decisions, you can see um, a response in public opinion getting more liberal, um, as you would if Congress passed more liberal or sorry, more conservative legislation. Um, but 
that effect decays over time and gets replaced by a small but significant movement in mood towards the ideological direction uh, of Supreme Court decision making. Um, and the way I characterized this is in, in uh, a paper in the AJPS a few years back was that there's back, a period of backlash against the Supreme Court followed by a longer period of legitimation where the public comes to uh, accept kind of ideological consequences of what the court has done. Um, and you know, that operates at this very abstract uh, level of, of ideological change, but it is very different from the patterns we see in terms of, of changes uh, uh, in response to the things that Congress and presidents do. So, you know, you might you might expect that that this applies to, say, abortion, where uh, after Roe v. Wade, there there might be a backlash. But eventually the public uh, kind of turns out on that side. We've seen the first part of that to the Dobbs decision. Is this the kind of thing where we really should expect um, the conservative turn in the court uh, to, to, to have a long term uh, benefit for conservative public? Yeah. So, you know, it's interesting because right? you have to. Yeah, you know, this is a, a this is a point where like my gut and my political science say different things. So my political science says, and let me just argue for that uh, here in the political science podcast. Um, yeah, right. The the model says is the court has done has become much more conservative than it was say you know between five years and, and a decade ago, whatever our break point is, um, and. Um, as the court, right, that's a this shock to the system. We should see a, a backlash, right, in the public becoming more liberal than it would be otherwise, keeping in mind that there are other things going on in the political system, right? We have a Democratic president for part of this period. We had a Democratic majority in Congress. So they're doing progressive things that are pushing back in the other direction. Um, but nevertheless, right, the court, the public would be more liberal than it would be in the absence of the more conservative Supreme Court. But that effect will decay, uh, over the next couple of years. So let's just say the big shock was in 2022 with Dobbs, right? We're still probably in the period of backlash, um, but moving towards the period where that will begin to decay and that the public will become more accepting uh, of the Dobbs decision than it was initially. Um, why does that decay happen? Um, what I had, what I've always kind of speculated is that it goes back to that elite signaling, right? We've had, um, you know, historians and law professors have done a really good job about this. Um, in particular, I like uh, Larry Kramer's book called The People Themselves. He was a law professor at NYU and became dean of Stanford Law School. And he argued that there's this very strong post-World War II consensus across party lines uh, about the, the legitimacy and sanctity of the Supreme Court. And that politicians of, of all ideological stripes, with some notable exceptions, uh, acquiesced to Supreme Court decisions, even when they didn't like them. Uh, they were still very deferential to the court. And I've always taken that as an important part of this equation, that when the court makes a decision, if politicians then say, well, look, um, maybe we don't like it, but this is the way things are and we just have to live with it, people get the message they need to live with it. One of the reasons I think abortion in, is so important in Supreme Court politics is I think it was maybe uniquely an issue where lots of politicians refused to accept the finality of, uh, of a Supreme Court decision. Um, and not just resisting its implementation, but to really advocate for changing 
the outcome by changing the composition of the court, right? To, to change some uh, uh, interpretation of the Constitution by treating the court as an ordinary political institution. Uh, and I think the political system and political elites and ordinary citizens at this point are getting the message um, that that's how things work. Um, and that's changing the kind of underlying structure. So um, to just come back to your question, I think, yes, I think over the next couple of years, the, the backlash will not be as strong and that there will get to a point where, um, again, as I said at the beginning, there'll be a small but significant movement in opinions towards the, the kind of position the court staked out. So you have also done a lot of work of the media as kind of the intermediary factor here in um, informing the public uh, about uh, the court. So how, how reliable is uh, media coverage uh, on what the court is doing? And, and is it just kind of a translation or is there kind of a, an independent effect of, of how the media is portraying the court? What I can say is that the, the media generally does a pretty good job when we have um, we look at something like how liberal are the cases that the, the media covers in a prominent place compared with the overall liberalism of the Supreme Court. It's a very high correlation, right? And the cases that get attention, right, if there's a lot of attention to very conservative decisions, uh, tends to be because they're being generated by a very conservative court and, and likewise when there's lots of coverage of liberal decisions. Um, in addition to that, the other thing that's kind of interesting about or another interesting finding in the literature on uh, the Supreme Court and the media is that Supreme Court decisions tend to generate, or at least in some circumstances, can generate attention to issues in the media that they weren't paying attention to before. So, uh, for example, the Dobbs decision, right, and we can look at this historically um, when it came to, say, gay rights or civil rights. Um, these were issues that were not getting so much attention in the national media. And when the Supreme Court began to make rulings on in, in those issue spaces, and particularly in ways that kind of upset um, the, the status quo, right, changed the, the kind of rights claims that people could make, um, the media began paying more attention to those. Um, and so, you know, when it comes to abortion, Abortion is, you know, this Dobbs is not just going to change the way people think about the abortion issue. It's also going to change the amount of time we all spend talking about abortion uh, and the amount of uh, you know, media coverage devoted to that issue. And not just to what the Supreme Court is doing on that issue, the, the attention of the whole system is going to shift, right? You'll see more bills in state legislatures, more bills in Congress, more op-ed. I mean, there's just going to be uh, it's going to be a bigger part of the national conversation because the court has acted in this way. So I guess I'm struggling because I don't see anything that is going to shift the overall direction of the court. But uh, the one other possibility that I, I see is, I guess, these uh, Roberts cutesy attempts to construct uh, coalitions that might seem to be perceived as more moderate decisions than the court could have made. And again, I'm kind of struggling with, would the public even notice that? Or is this just going to be, well, it's, a, it's another conservative decision, but there might be media coverage of, well, it could have gone further. So that's, that's what I'm struggling with. Is that the kind of thing that the public might notice and say, well, maybe they're not going as conservative as I thought? Yeah, you know, John Roberts is interesting as a character. I mean, and I have written before, I wrote a couple of papers with Carla Flink um, from American University about the kind of unique role of the Chief Justice in preserving the Supreme Court's institutional standing. Um, I think John Roberts is 
has a model of preserving Supreme Court legitimacy and preserving Supreme Court approval that guides his actions that's different from other conservative and Republican members of the court. Um, and I think he is taking actions to try to take the edge off some of this stuff. Um, you could see it in in his approach to the Dobbs decision, right? That he wrote a concurring opinion saying, look, we can uphold this Mississippi law without striking down Roe versus Wade. And I think if that was the headline, like, hey, the Supreme Court allows stricter abortion regulations, um, but up Roe versus Wade survives, I think that's, that's a difference that registers, right? Because that's a difference in the policymaking reality that people experience, right? People in you know, Texas or South Carolina don't live in a state with a total abortion ban at that point. Maybe they live in a state that bans abortion after the first trimester. And that's a real difference. Um, and... And so, you know, the way that that plays out depends on the extent to which that project is successful and just how many times he can do it in relation to how many times he can't do it and on what issues he's successful. Right. So if it's these more marginal issues and it's infrequent, it won't register much. If it turns into a more successful project, if somebody like Neil Gorsuch also gets nervous about the Supreme Court's legitimacy uh, and starts to worry about uh, you know, the plausibility of Supreme Court reforms or court packing or something like that, then it might have more legs. And, and right now, we just don't know how it's likely to play out um, beyond saying that, that um, it seems that it will be difficult for any one justice to kind of overcome the way the just the numbers game of the kind of ideological and partisan composition of the court. So to what extent should uh, the Supreme Court uh, be paying attention to uh, overall uh, conservatism or liberalism of public opinion and asking itself if it's going too far beyond that in some way or to the direction to say to, to react if there's a liberal move in public opinion? Uh, and I guess, can you sketch us some futures uh, that are kind of the best case of them paying that paying attention to that in the worst case? William Riker, right, the great political scientist, um, has this line at the end of a paper he wrote in the American Political Science Review, which is essentially that any political system that doesn't return the same result you get from ma simple majority rule is unlikely to survive in the long run. I'm paraphrasing a little bit. Um, when right, that, that system of supply and demand of policymaking that I talked about earlier if you have a set of institutions that reliably and in the long run fail to meet people's demands for the policy making they want, right? just the disaffection builds and something's got to give, right? Whether that is something that gives in a peaceable way within the confines of the system, you know, uh, big constitutional amendments as we've had in American history, big reforms to uh, the way the Supreme Court operates as we've had in American history. Right? Those are things you know, where something right, demand has built up in some way um, and, and shifted things within the system. We've also had a couple of things you know, happen where um, there have been breaks in the system that have spilled outside. Right? So uh, you know, uh, Matt Hall from Notre Dame and I wrote this, this essay for the conversation about um, resistance in the South to federal courts, um, uh, school desegregation decisions. Right? And then spilling out violently when the system couldn't contain them. Does the court need to follow public opinion? I think the answer is right. The whole system has to follow public opinion at some point. Now, there's a question about what public opinion. I don't think courts in particular are designed or ought to follow every short term whim. 
but a system that's designed in a way to essentially to insulate the court from following persistent, enduring, meaningful changes in the way that Americans think about the structure of their rights um, and to make decisions on important questions of, of liberty at odds with Americans' understanding of their own freedoms and what their own constitutions mean, uh, I, I, don't, I don't know that that can endure. Um, and so I think the real question isn't about whether these justices should start following public opinion. It's a bigger question about have we designed an institution that is sufficiently responsive to public opinion over the long run um, in the first place, right? It's not on these nine people's shoulders to, to, to you know, suddenly decide to start doing something different. It's a bigger question of constitutional design. And I think what we're seeing in the court, as we're also seeing in other institutions in American national politics, is that maybe uh, the systems we have in place you know, aren't, <laughs> are really sort of at the breaking point in the stresses that, that our political moment is putting on them. So what do scholars uh, in political science know about uh, the, the courts and, and public opinion uh, that practitioners and the media don't pay enough attention to and, and the reverse? Is there anything where we have it uh, uh, wrong or at least that we should pay more attention to what uh, close observers outside of academia are saying? There is a difference between low approval and lost legitimacy that I, I think that the media coverage of the court these days um, is not sensitive to, that political scientists who study these issues um, maybe have a better handle on. Um, in terms of uh, what the the public knows that maybe scholars don't, I think even, I mean, even when I was first getting into studying this stuff as a graduate student in the early 2000s, I think there was a sensibility, a dominant sensibility among scholars that ordinary people didn't have the Supreme Court on their radar, that it really wasn't a prominent part of the way that people thought about politics. And maybe, you know, when people ran for president and they talked about the justices they would appoint, it's not exactly that they were wasting their time, but um, they were communicating kind of a narrow audience or you know, it was like talking about foreign policy as a way to demonstrate mastery of an issue that presidents are expected to have mastery of, but not really uh, about the content of it. Um, and even though I, I, I think most people have it right now, I do still think there's this kind of lingering suspicion that maybe attention to the court is less or of a different kind than attention to other kinds of policymaking news and information. Um, and I think, you know, over the, you know, whether it's something that's changed or, or whether it's just right, a, a different sensibility, I think um, that seeing the court and what it's doing is part of the same flow of information and judgments and attitudes that people have um, about other national policymaking institutions is something that I think journalism and, and practitioners maybe are ahead of the academy in recognizing. But how out of step is the Supreme Court from American public opinion? That's what Stephen Jesse has been investigating. All right. So you have uh, found that the U.S. Supreme Court has become more conservative than the American public. How do you go about making that kind of determination? How can you compare the public's opinions with the court's views? Yeah, so, so, so that's sort of the central question we're interested in. Um, and obviously, the, the process by which Supreme Court justices or the court as a whole 
decide cases is really different from the process by which ordinary Americans think about the issues in these cases to the extent that they think about them at all before they read our survey questions. Um, and we think that, in fact, for, for many, maybe most cases heard by the Supreme Court, it's not possible for ordinary people to form meaningful opinions. So these cases might be on arcane legal issues or technicalities that maybe would be difficult for people to understand if they didn't have a law degree, right? Um, but the cases heard by the Supreme Court uh, often, usually, have big impacts on the lives of all Americans. Um, and for many of these cases, uh, the issues they deal with are, are ones that people likely have opinions on. So, you know, a big example of this would be the court's recent ruling in, in Dobbs, which overruled Roe v. Wade uh, and eliminated the constitutional right um, for a woman to choose to have an abortion in many circumstances. Um, so, so in this case, uh, the legal issues might be about whether various parts of the Constitution create some right to privacy that might include the right to have an abortion or something like that. Um, and most people may not understand these sort of legal or constitutional issues, but in terms of the impact of that decision, we'd expect that most people have an opinion. So they would have an opinion on whether there should be some constitutional right to terminate a pregnancy. Um, and with many of the cases heard by the court each term on topics like religious freedom, protections against discrimination, um, say protections for the environment, uh, we think it's interesting and important to, to understand how the public's views correspond to the court's rulings. Um, so to do this, uh, we've conducted a series of surveys um, that ask a, a random sample of Americans for their opinions about some of the important cases heard each term, uh, and also some questions about their general views of the court and their, their knowledge about it. Um, so, so the first of these surveys uh, conducted way back in 2010 with, with Neil Malhotra, um, asked about uh, important cases over a five-year period. I think it was from 2005 to 2010. Uh, but, and we view that as sort of a precursor to our, our real project that we call SCOTUS Poll. Um, and, and with SCOTUS Poll, each year since 2020, we've conducted an annual survey. Um, and, and that's uh, with, with me, Neil Mahotra, and also Maya Sen, who's a professor at the Kennedy School at Harvard. And, and we choose what we think are some of the most notable cases that are heard uh, by the court in a given term. And we sample maybe a couple thousand Americans and ask for their opinions about these cases. Um, so this set of surveys, which is four or five surveys now, um, we can plan to continue fielding it annually. It, it, it gives us a way of sort of comparing the court's rulings uh, to the views of the public and, and tracking these things relative to each other over time. So, so to give you an example, to make it a little more concrete, in 2020, the, co the court heard a case called uh, Bostock v. Clayton County, and, and that questioned whether employers could fire workers based on their sexual orientation or whether uh, federal civil rights law uh, prohibited that. Um, and so we asked a question uh, on this case that said, some people think it should be illegal for employees to be fired based on their sexual orientation because it's discrimination on the basis of sex. Other people think it should be legal because it's not discrimination on the basis of sex. And, and we found uh, perhaps surprisingly that, that the vast majority, 83% of respondents, uh, including 75% of respondents who identify as Republicans, said that this discrimination um, based on sexual orientation should be illegal. Uh, and then we compared those responses to the court's eventual ruling, which, which actually held that firing workers for being gay was indeed illegal under the Civil Rights Act. Um, so in each year, we ask 10 or 12 questions like this about important cases. Um, and then 
in terms of how we compare these things, one way to compare is, is simple but important is on a case-by-case -case basis, right? So in Bostock, for example, we found that most Americans agreed with what was actually the court's eventual ruling. So in that case, we might say, all right, the court sort of went along with the majority of public opinion, right? Not everyone's public opinion, but, but most Americans. Um, and over the first few waves of SCOTUS poll, we found that uh, that most of the time, somewhere around two thirds of the time, the, the court's rulings were in line with the majority position. And, and that's certainly a useful way to look at things, right? And, and if you're interested in a specific case or a specific issue, you, you could certainly do that. Uh, but we also want to get an idea of how the court compares uh, to the public in terms of overall ideology. So, for example, is the court more liberal than the public, more conservative than the public, pretty similar ideologically? And, and there are several ways of doing this. A simple way might be to just calculate the percentage of time that the court ruled in the liberal direction on these sort of major cases that we've chosen in a given term, right? So maybe the court ruled in the liberal direction on, you know, 35% of those cases. And then we could say, all right, well, on average, what percent liberal responses do the public give on these case questions? And maybe the public is more liberal in that, in that way or not. Um, the way we actually do it in, in, uh, in our research is to use a, a little bit of a, a fancier way of doing it, um, an approach called ideal point estimation, which um, in the end gives you typically estimates that are fairly similar to the simple way that you might do it, percent liberal, but they... Um, it essentially conceives of this ideological scale from very liberal to very conservative, kind of a continuous scale. And the idea is to use a statistical model to estimate the ideological positions of each of the justices on the court and the court overall, uh, as well as the uh, positions of each survey respondent based on the positions they take on each specific case or each case, case question, right? So we're able to estimate the ideological position of all the justices, the court as a whole, and then each survey respondent. And, and we care less about individual survey respondents' ideologies than averages, say the average ideology of uh, you know, the American public or the average ideology maybe of, uh, of a Republican or a Democrat uh, in, in the American public. So, so that's the main way that we sort of uh, think about trying to estimate those positions and make these comparisons. And, 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 you know, as you said, the big goal of this SCOTUS poll project is to have a way of comparing the ideological positions of the court and its justices to, to the American public. And, and just state the, the finding, um, given that, uh, research, um, you know, we're looking at the ideal points and we're comparing, uh, the court with the public and what do we find? Uh, yeah, so so we find um, in in our paper in the in the in PNAS uh, the the finding is that although the court um, was ideologically pretty similar to the average position uh, of of sort of the American public um, in say 2010 and and even in 2020 after um, Kavanaugh replaced Kennedy, um, the the first thing we found is that interestingly. This was perhaps due to, to sort of um, luck or coincidence more than anything, given that the vast majority of the justices individually held ideological positions that were quite extreme relative to the public, right? So there were justices that were um, uh, more extreme, uh, more liberal than the vast majority of the public, and there were also justices that were more conservative. But the court as a whole, um, you know, in 2010... Uh, and shortly before, because we had, you know, a couple of moderate justices in O'Connor and Kennedy, 
who tended to be sort of the swing vote on the court. And even in 2020, um, when surprisingly, after Roberts became the median, um, the, the court didn't really move that much that we detected in that year. Um, so, so in both of those years, uh, both of those time periods, it seemed like the court actually represented public opinion pretty well. Uh, and, and, you know, I'm guessing we'll get to this. We're not saying that the court is designed to do this or even should do this. Uh, but it happened to be the case that the court's rulings in those years um, were on average, you know, kind of similar. The court had a had an ideological position that was similar to slightly more conservative than maybe, but really similar to the average American's ideological position. Um, then when uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg uh, was replaced by uh, Amy Coney Barrett, the court moved uh, sharply to the right. Um, now, now, I would have predicted, in fact, uh, Neil and I had, a, had an opinion piece in the New York Times that actually did predict uh, that when Kavanaugh replaced Kennedy, the court would move well to the right of, of, of most Americans. Uh, that, that didn't actually happen or didn't happen as soon as we predicted. Um, I think we could, we could discuss why. I think it's somewhat speculative, but some combination of Roberts, you know, trying to, to uh, keep the court um, from, from moving too quickly and, and also the unique mix of cases during the, the time. Um, but at any rate, by, by our 2021 survey, uh, the court's ideological position was estimated to be well to the right of the average American's ideological position. And it was actually estimated to be almost identical to the position of not the average American, but the average uh, Republican. So the average person who identifies with the Republican part. So, so I think that's the main finding is that we're able to sort of track the ideological position of the court through its rulings relative to uh, the position of the American public in various subgroups in it and, and sort of document this rightward shift um, in, in a pretty direct way. So let's dig in a little bit um, to the, the methods here. Um, it, it seems like uh, you said you're selecting the cases that the public might know the most about and trying to put them in terms that the public would be most likely to recognize. But we still get some pretty arcane issues um, but before the court. Um, and they seem like ones that would be uh, most susceptible to get it, giving us non-opinions, or as you said, would be opinions developed on the fly just in response to the survey question, might be affected by wording, those kinds of things. So I guess to what extent do you think that these are, are real opinions, or is, there, is it sort of something else that you're assessing here? So, so yeah, I think it's an important question. It's a bit tricky, um, and, and it does apply uh, in, in some way to all sorts of public opinion surveys. But but these types of questions might be particularly susceptible to it. Um, I think the farther away you go from these standard sort of meat and potatoes political questions, you know, things that people have probably talked about, thought about, uh, the more you might have your responses driven in part by survey artifacts like question wording or things like that. Um, we actually have a paper um, that's in progress using these SCOTUS poll data that, that looks at um, things like question length, question complexity, and respondent characteristics like political knowledge or education, um, and how those relate to, to response order effects. Um, so we take advantage of the fact that, that in each of the SCOTUS poll questions that we fielded, there are actually two versions where we flip the response order and we, we sort of rewrite the question accordingly to present the two sides in a different order. Um, and so what we find in, in this paper um, is that uh, consistent with a lot of prior work on, on survey research, people are generally more likely to pick the first response that you give them, uh, all else equal. Um, it's a small difference, less than 3% on average, 
um, but it clearly exists. Um, but we also find that the magnitude of this difference varies with question characteristics, mainly question length, but we also look at sort of complexity um, and then respondent knowledge and, and things like that. Um, so, so that paper is still in progress, but I think the findings are important, not just for our work, but for survey research more broadly. And, and you know, we have to make decisions on how to write questions to balance things like precision and completeness against practical concerns like whether respondents are going to pay attention long enough to, to read your entire question. Um, so, so in the case of our SCOTUS poll questions specifically, um, I think for most cases heard by the Supreme Court, people would be unlikely to have real opinions. Uh, and as you said, we, we chose notable opin notable cases uh, that are likely to be comprehensible and that, that deal with sort of important issues. Uh, a lot of these are things like abortion, environmental regulation, affirmative action, where you know, I think I think people are likely to have real opinions, um, uh, but there are cases uh, where where things are a little more obscure, um, and so I think you know we're we're attuned to that. I think our approach, to some extent, um, would would tend to make those cases less important in our in our estimation. You know, if it's a case where you know people don't have real opinions or the opinions aren't really that ideological. Um, the likely impact of that at the end of the day would be that that case doesn't really drive our ideology estimates that much. Um, but I think it is something that's important to think about. And I think, you know, we would like in the future to, to, to have something to say about, you know, the, the level of sort of realness of the opinions on, on different types of cases. And not to get too uh, down into the weeds on the ideal point uh, estimation, um, but talk a little bit about how that treatment might differ from others, especially because the, the other paper we're discussing sort of just asks Americans whether the court is being too liberal or too conservative or about right. And you might expect that people don't necessarily place the court on a spectrum, but they sort of just say, how much is it moving in one direction or another? So how, how does your kind of ideological positioning compare to, to that? Yeah, so uh, so what we really want to do is pin down um, the court's position based on its actual rulings and the justices' positions based on their actual votes um, and pin down survey respondents' uh, positions based on their opinions on the issues that are that are being impacted by these cases. So I think it is informative and useful to look at what people think in response to a general question on is the court too liberal or has the court moved to the right. Um, but I think it's also useful to say, well, if we can measure where a respondent stands based on their stated views and we know what the court actually ruled, how do those correspond, right? So that allows us to look at sort of, you know, what what is really going on rather than what the perception is. Um, so I think that's an advantage. It's it's also an advantage that um, it's very tricky to estimate um, ideological position and movement over time. People have tried to do this for a long time, asking about estimating the ideology of members of Congress with things like nominate scores, Poole and Rosenthal did you know, a ton of great work on that and other people have developed it further. Um, and then people like Martin and Quinn and others have, have tried to do things like this with um, Supreme Court positions. Um, one really tricky thing is it's often very difficult to say, uh, to, to compare these things over time. There are issues like, well, what if everyone in the Supreme Court just took a step to the left at the same time? You might not be able to detect that. Um, 
And so one thing our approach does is it kind of uses a different sort of anchor for our estimates. And we, we're essentially estimating the court's position and the justice's position relative to the distribution of public opinion or ideology in the public. Um, and so I think that kind of um, gives us a unique angle on this. Um, so I think those two aspects, really pinning things down to actual policy positions and sort of giving that anchor, uh, make our approach unique, even though even though I think these more general questions, uh, self-placements and, and things like that can be useful in their own right. And is there a clear uh, uh, assessment of how much these things are connected? In other words, we have this court-specific uh, measure of public opinion that you've identified, but it, it would seem to have issues that were pretty similar to, to other policy issues. So is it just measuring left-right ideology, either self-professed or in any other kind of issue index, uh, or is this something unique? Yeah, our estimates of respondents' ideologies are pretty strongly correlated with their responses to something like the commonly used five-point ideological self-identification scales. So I think that's, you know, reassuring. Um, I think you could also argue, well, what's what's the benefit if, if it's so highly correlated? Um, but I would say that, you know, even though it's highly correlated, we don't actually know whether someone who says that they are you know, somewhat conservative, say on the five point scale, uh, do they have a position that is similar to the court's position, right? Um, and so that's where our contribution comes in is we can sort of pin these things down relative to each other. So, so like I said, I think it's reassuring that these things are correlated because I think you are right that for the most part, um, the way we're considering uh, these ideologies, at least for the public, is sort of, you know, what are your policy views? What do you want policy to be? And the fact that this is decided by a Supreme Court that's at least, you know, on paper, deciding these things based on what the Constitution means and, you know, theories of legal interpretation, um, you know, at the end of the day, there's a policy impact of these decisions, and that's really what we're focusing on. So I think that's sort of our added contribution and, and sort of what we're, what we're able to do um, with our measures. So you also track uh, expectations about opinions, and you use this uh, to claim that the public has kind of underperceived uh, conservative change on the court. So uh, tell us about how you do that and what the potential mechanisms for that underperception might be. Yeah. So in addition to asking people about their own opinions, um, essentially how they think the court should rule on each case, we also ask how they uh, expect that the court will rule. Right? Not just how you want the court to rule, but what do you think the court will actually do? Right? So there are certainly people who probably said uh, something like, I want the court to uphold Roe v. Wade uh, and not, not get rid of the constitutional right to an abortion, but I think that the court will rule the other direction. Right? So we wanted to capture both of those things. Um, so, so in many, probably most cases and, and respondents, this is probably a, a guess, probably you know, sometimes a pretty wild guess. Uh, maybe one educated a little bit by some understanding or impressions uh, of the court uh, or the case at hand. Um, but we think these questions are useful uh, for some things. Um, we just have to keep in mind that they're pushing farther toward things that survey respondents may not have thought about that much related to, to some of your earlier questions. Um, so, so accordingly, uh, I think that while we can look at the absolute estimates of things like where the court, where the public perceives the court, and that can be useful, um, it's also informative and maybe even more reliable to look at changes. So, for example, if the if the public views the court as uh, 
much more conservative on average in one year compared to the previous year, uh, I, I'm more inclined to think that that movement is, is, is real and meaningful, um, even if there are sort of survey artifacts and people might not have real opinions. You know, if it was totally random, why, why would it change systematically between the two years? So, so in our 2010 survey, we found that the public on average thought the court was quite liberal. Uh, respondents on average estimated the court's position uh, about a half a standard deviation to the left of the average American's ideology. So that would be more similar to the uh, ideology of the average Democrat and the public than the average American. So they, they thought the court was, was you know, pretty liberal relative to the American public. Um, and in 2020, the public updated its uh, perceptions to think that the court was uh, more conservative. Um, so uh, that was in response to, to Kavanaugh replacing Kennedy. There's a lot of coverage of, you know, how that's going to shift the court to the right. Um, and as I mentioned, it, it, in that specific year, didn't estimate that the court moved that much, but the public shift actually meant that it had a much more accurate position uh, perception of the court um, uh, in the end that year. Um, but then in 2021, uh, when the court actually did move dramatically to the right of most Americans, the public didn't catch on immediately, and it still perceived the court uh, pretty similarly to how it did in, in 2020, as as you know about the same as the average American's position, maybe may slightly to the right. Um, I, I suspect that in 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 uh, in the wake of the Dobbs ruling, which is obviously probably the most prominent ruling the court's issued in, in a very long time, um, that that's going to be something that's going to cause people to update further. Um, and, and we haven't fully analyzed the data from the, the, the survey that occurred after the court decided that case, but, but it'd be really interesting to see. And finally, you associate uh, these uh, perceptions with institutional reform um, support. I think with the aim being that, you know, at some point, if the court was seen as being very un unrepresentative, um, that uh, that might be a reason for, for reform. So um, what do you find and, and what, why is there a relationship? We find that the people who perceive the court as more conservative than, than themselves uh, are more supportive on average of court reforms, such as term limits or expanding the size of the court. Um, so these are things, obviously, that there were presidential commission discussing. Uh, it seemed like there was some momentum on this. It's, it's unclear if that's fizzled a bit, but uh, at any rate, it's something that was sort of legitimately discussed in the media and among elites and, and even, uh, you know, uh, within the, the, the executive branch in some sense. Um, so the fact that the people who see the court's ideology as to the right of themselves are much more supportive of these reforms to the court, these changes, um, then people who see the court as similar to themselves, or especially people who see the court as to the left of themselves, uh, that actually suggests coupled with the fact that the public misperceives on average the court as being more liberal than it is, put those two things together. And, and that's pretty suggestive that if people accurately perceived how conservative the court was relative to the public or specifically to, to themselves, um, then support for these reforms would be even higher, uh, even higher um, than it currently is, right? So, so one important question will be, you know, if in the wake of the Dobbs decision or, or other other things that that the court has done recently, if people will change their perception to update um, and and more accurately view the court as being as conservative as it is, and if that will also result in uh, people 
being more supportive of term limits, uh, packing the court or other things. Um, so, so our findings are a bit suggestive on this count, but both of those two sort of associations put together, I think, I think say something interesting about what's going on. So uh, it seems like there's a, a normative uh, basis to the to the project to some extent that um, you know the court should at least be attending to to public opinion or not be um, extremely far off uh, from public opinion. But I also doubt that you all think that the the court should just look at your survey and then rule accordingly um, uh, as as a kind of a we usually think of the court as doing something different um, than than just um, taking a poll and siding with the public. So what are are the considerations in kind of how much this should be driving uh, uh, court action? And is there some kind of a threshold as to when the court is too far away from public opinion uh, that would stimulate these kind of institutional reform discussions? Yeah, this project actually, um, the, the idea for it came out of, of this, this type of, of, of question. Um, so the the court obviously was designed in large part to be insulated from public opinion, right? That once the justices are appointed, they essentially have lifetime tenure, don't have to worry about uh, public opinion or electoral concerns or things like that. Um, and there are obviously reasons why we might want this for a court. So a classic example is uh, so that the court can, can protect minority rights against the will of the majority or something like that. Um, so, so people might say something like the court isn't supposed to just do what the public wants. And, and I wouldn't disagree with you. Um, even if you say that the court shouldn't be affected at all by public opinion, I think it's still an important question for political scientists and other people to ask uh, just about how the decisions of the court compare with what the public wants. Right. So even if the court is supposed to be totally indifferent to public opinion, um, it's interesting and important to just say, all right, well, how do its rulings compare to what the public actually wants? So, for example, is the court really serving often as a big check on majority rule, protecting rights by ruling against the views of most Americans? Uh, and if it does this, does it do it as often in the liberal direction as in the conservative direction or, or, or other things like that? Um, and then, as you mentioned, there are also important but thorny questions about whether it's a problem if the court drifts too far from public opinion in terms of its legitimacy, um, you know, a commonly cited thing is that the court doesn't have the power to enforce its decisions, so it largely relies on its legitimacy and prestige to, you know, hopefully force other branches of government to go along with what it decides. Um, at the end of the day, if if the Congress or the president said, uh, yeah, we, we see your ruling Supreme Court, but we don't care, we're going to keep doing this, um, it's not exactly clear what uh, what the court could do. Um, and the main check against that might be something like, well, the public might view that as a big violation of norms of American politics and, and, and punish that electorally or something like that. Um, but given that the public's views of the court seem to have gone dramatically downhill in a lot of ways in recent years, I, I think these questions are, are sort of all, all the more important. Um, so, so I think, you know, that our goal here is sort of to characterize these things. And while we don't directly say, uh, you know, the court should follow public opinion or it should follow a public public opinion this much, I do think there are important concerns about um, what might happen if the court and its decisions drift further and further away from the views of the average American. And you've seen, you know, increasingly, you've seen democratic politicians, governors, and others even begin to suggest that maybe we should ignore what the court is saying if it rules, say, against abortion rights or other things. 
Um, and I think it's an important but tricky question, you know, how that's going to operate, how that depends on the correspondence between the court's rulings and public opinion. And so um, it's actually something we're, we're trying to look at a little more in future work, even if that's pushing at least me a little farther down the normative path than I might usually be used to. I, I definitely think those are important questions. So the the Dobbs decision is is probably the the best example of a real world mechanism that um, operates somewhat similarly to what you might expect from your findings that um, the court rules um, against uh, public opinion in a major high salient way. Um, the public notices um, there's at least an electoral backlash associated with it. Um, but I kind of have a hard time extending from that to, uh, to, to 10 other issues. Um, that is, I'm, it's not that you couldn't possibly think of that happening repeatedly, but since that's about the best example you could come up with, it, it kind of makes you think, how likely is this to occur in the real world, that the public would um, you know, notice these moves um, continually, react continually? So, so how much do you expect that kind of mechanism to, to operate? And how, yeah. how unique is kind of the abortion case here? Yeah, I think I agree with your characterization on that. I think Dobbs is one of these, you know, once, probably more than once in a decade, maybe once in a lifetime decisions where uh, virtually every American who's paying attention at all, you know, hears about it, at least in some form and essentially comprehends, hopefully, that the basic idea of what the court's doing, essentially overruling Roe v. Wade and, and basically uh, removing uh, a constitutional right to, to choose to have an abortion, right? Um, so, so I think in the case of Dobbs, it's likely to have a big impact on the public's views of the court and for that to happen pretty directly. Obviously, people aren't hearing directly from the court. They're not like, you know, going to the, to the building and hearing the decision announced or, or even like reading the opinion directly from that the court wrote. But they're certainly hearing from the media and others um, the, the gist of what's been decided. And, and so I think that's pretty directly going to operate to perhaps create backlash or at least inform uh, perceptions of the court. Um, we haven't fully analyzed the wave of data that was collected since Dobbs, so we, we can't say exactly how that's that's operating, but I, but I have pretty strong suspicions. Um, on the other cases, you know, we haven't pinned it down and it's something we're, we're interested in looking at, maybe through something like content analyses of like media or uh, politician statements about the court. Um, but I suspect that the that the typical mechanism is is some combination of hearing indirectly about what the court's done, or even hearing characterizations in the media or by politicians of of what the court is doing generally. Right. So if you hear Biden in a speech or a press conference talking about how the court is, you know, making these radical decisions or 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 taking these uh, dramatically conservative positions, um, then that's likely to inform your views one way or another. Um, so, so I think it, it's one thing that we'd like to, to analyze a little more directly. It's kind of tricky to pin down these mechanisms, but I definitely suspect that for most cases, it's not a direct uh, impact and it's sort of um, an overall picture that's maybe cumulative from what you hear. And um, as I mentioned, I think a good example of this is the uh, sort of relentless characterization by Republicans and conservatives in past decades of the, the Supreme Court and really the judicial branch as sort of activist liberal courts and, and judges. Um, and I think that type of thing has an impact in the long run. I suspect that that's a big part of the reason why people uh, uh, sort of 
perceived the court as much more liberal than it was, uh, even as late as say 2010, um, and, and then again in, in 2021 when it shifted to the right. Um, but I suspect that the dominant narrative now is becoming sort of a, a, an activist, or maybe use a different term, a, a court that's moving things quickly and dramatically in the conservative direction. And so, yeah, I suspect that mostly people are hearing about that sort of indirectly and holistically rather than about specific cases with the possible exception of things like Dobbs. There's a lot more to learn. The Science of Politics is available bi-weekly from the Niskanen Center. I'm your host, Matt Grossman. If you like this discussion, here are the episodes you should check out next, all linked on our website. How the Supreme Court shapes and is shaped by its public support. How court nominations polarize interest groups. Descriptive representation in Supreme Court nominations. How the Federalist Society changed the Supreme Court vetting process. And how does the public move to the right when policy moves left? Thanks to Joe Yura and Stephen Jesse for joining me. Please check out a decade-long longitudinal survey shows the Supreme Court is now much more conservative than the public and ideology and specific support for the Supreme Court, and then listen in next time.